the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Continue our conversation. Brian Brown is with us tonight. We're sharing details from the pages of his new book called Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. It started out as any other Memorial Day weekend. Plans to head off with his one of his daughters and his wife to go visit a daughter that lived in Mountain Home, Idaho. The plans, though, for that weekend changed quite drastically along with the weather. When we pick up the story last, Brian, um, we talk about the fact that you, you literally had a, a crash landing, although I don't even quite call it a, a landing. It certainly was not intentional. You, you clipped a couple of trees with one of the wings. Is that what kind of started this? Uh, we clipped a tree with each wing, yeah. We, we'd lost about three to four feet of wing on, on both sides. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that 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 plane is in big trouble, and you, your daughter, and your wife are even in bigger trouble. You go from 130, 40 miles an hour to 40 miles an hour to zero miles an hour, pretty quickly. What happened? Well, yeah, like we like we discussed, we um, we went down into the canyon. We we pitched the nose up at the last minute when I got control back of the aircraft, and then smacked belly first into the mountainside. And then from that point, um, actually. Uh, our world world kind of went black. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Jan and I, were knocked out completely. Uh, me only for really a couple of seconds. Uh, and then the next thing I knew, I, I, I kind of snapped awake and thought, "Wow, we're alive!" I was just here was the first miracle. We we lived through this. Uh, like you said, a crash landing in the mountains is is usually fatal and uh, mostly fatal most of the time. And and here I am. I'm I'm alive. And then the next thing I had heard was Heather, my, my youngest daughter, yelling, you know, Mom. And when I looked over at Jayanne, uh, Heather was had a hold of Jayanne's shirt and was keeping her from falling out of the aircraft because on impact, the door on Jayanne's side had ripped off and Jayanne was not completely unconscious and limp like a rag doll falling out of the aircraft. Mm. And so my immediate thought was, oh, I, I just I killed my wife. I mean, I, I just was was terrified and um but i kind of snapped into rescuer mode at that point and had grabbed grabbed a hold of jn's shirt pulled her back into the aircraft and had noticed that she had deep snoring respirations and her eyes were kind of just rolled into the back of her head and and you know i just you know, I was doing everything I could to get her airway open and, and keep her with us. And now, is the airplane at this point, Brian, physically on the ground or up in the trees? Oh, it's on the ground. Okay. Yeah, we had we had kind of just planted belly first, pretty securely into the ground at that point, and it, it wasn't going anywhere. You're you're on top of a mountain in cold weather. Yeah, in the dark. Uh, wasn't quite dark yet, but getting there, yeah. Okay, um, and I would imagine upon crashing, uh, that probably left a lot of the the plane inoperable. And by that, I mean uh, communication systems and anything of that sort. Was any of that working? Uh, no, it wasn't. And uh, that was, you know, once I got JN back with us, that was the next, very next order of business. You know, I checked on Heather and made sure she was fine. 
and then Heather actually helped me get some of my equipment out of my flight bag that was that had slid back into the tail cone on the crash. Uh, and uh, one of those things happened to be my portable aviation radio. Nobody had any broken bones. Uh, yeah, we actually did. Um, I broke my my right arm. I broke several ribs, my nose. Uh, I had a deep laceration all the way to the bone on my uh, left arm, and I had a pretty good laceration on my left leg also. Um, and Jan and I both went into the windshield. So with me, I actually I was bleeding pretty heavily at that point. Uh, I took over 150 stitches into my head to get me all uh, secured up later. You're, you're running the risk of bleeding out. I was bleeding pretty good, yeah. Um, really the least of my worries. <laughs> uh, but once Heather found that portable radio for me, I turned it on to make sure that my emergency beacon on the aircraft was working. And to me, that was one of the next miracles is it was. It was sounding off like it's supposed to. Um, otherwise, you know, I'd have to physically put it together and make it make it activate. Um, and then from that point, I actually took the radio, and it, with a, a bunch of argument from Heather, um, I walked up the mountainside about two or 300 yards and tried to transmit a mayday. Any luck? No. Unfortunately, none. Uh, you're, you're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You really don't, I would imagine, did you have any kind of bearing as to even where you were? Uh, real real slight bearing as far as where I was. You know, I had a direct line um, rerouted from when I sat at Rome, uh, Oregon to, you know, I, I refixed another line of, of flight because obviously we were way off all my other flight plans. Sure. And, and of course the problem is even if you know where you're at, how do the rescuers yeah. know where you're at? You talked before the break about the the uh, the unseen hand in all of this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there, again, you know, from the very first, when I looked at the, the thought and I opened my eyes, it was like, wow, this is an absolute miracle. Somebody was, somebody was controlling this aircraft along with me that, that helped us land in a way where the aircraft was all in one piece. The entire aircraft was within a 50-foot radius, all the pieces, parts, everything. And that's just unheard of. And so, again, you know, what, you know, there, there was... Something that, that has no earthly explanation that was controlling that aircraft for us that, that got us down safely to survive. In retrospect, is it fair to say that you had perhaps significantly underestimated God in all of this? Oh, there's no doubt that I had significantly underestimated God. Yeah, it's, it's very embarrassing at this point, you know, in my life to admit that. You know, was not a real praying man or anything like that, but... There was absolutely no doubting it. I, I guess this is another example. What's the saying in, in, in foxholes and, I guess, plane crash sites? There are few atheists to be found. <laughs> yes, very true. And, and, again, it's what drove me to write the book because it, it, the, the media looked at the cell phone, you know, because that was another miracle in and of itself. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a minute because this, this is the, probably one of the most astonishing parts of this story. <laughs> Everybody listening right now knows that you can... Can be in the most logical location, and all of a sudden there's no cell service. Anybody care to tell their experiences driving across the Dumbarton Bridge? You know that one little stretch that I'm talking about? Yeah, people are nodding their heads. Where all of a sudden, inexplicably, you lose the call. 
every day. You can do it like clockwork. You know exactly where it's going to be, where you're going to lose the call. You're in the middle of nowhere. That's right. You, you, know, you can see no lights from where you're at. There's no sense of a sign of, uh, of, of a civilization anywhere. It's not like, well, down at the edge of the foot of the hill, here's a little town. There was nothing visually within sight, and yet, miraculously, your daughter, Heather, had a cell connection? Yeah. Huh. And it actually it was my wife's phone, Jane's phone. Huh. But yeah, um, and who it was was Tabitha. She was trying to find out why we hadn't made our destination yet. But you know, this is a couple of hours after we, you know, we're sitting in the aircraft. It's at midnight at this point, and things are pitch black. Like you said, there's no lights, there's no civilization, there's nothing. We're freezing already because it is snowing on us at this point. And in the middle of that dead quiet silence, the cell phone rings. And we we literally sucked all of the air out of the aircraft when we gasped. Oh, you hadn't even tried the cell phone. We didn't know they were there. They when we crashed, you know, things went flying throughout the the wreckage, and the phones ended up on the floorboard of the aircraft. And you had to have been thinking, even if you knew it was there, uh, what's the what's the likelihood of getting us hell, even one bar in the middle of nowhere? Exactly right. Because again, even in my own living room, a lot of times my cell phone won't work. And uh, I again, it was just. It, it left me speechless at the moment. I, I couldn't believe it. It was like, how in the world do we get a cell phone signal deep in, the, in a mountain canyon in a, in a snowstorm? You know, it just it was just a, an absolute miracle. Now, putting aside for the moment, uh, you know, the great advertising for your cell phone carrier that would say, <laughs> you know, we cover the whole country. Um, aside from maybe a, a, a technological attempt at an answer in the in, in the in the depth of your heart. What's the answer to that question for you, Brian, as to how in the world did you get a cell phone service in the middle of nowhere? Well, again, the only thing I could do. In my mind, I visualize God's finger on wherever the closest cell tower was and the other one on our phone. Because it wasn't like the phone really worked well. It worked just enough to get the information that we needed out. And, and you know, so it, it, it made the, the 911 call and allowed us to say about where we were. And it, it worked again a couple of more times that I, I don't really want to get too deep in because it, it tells... It, it'll make your jaw drop when you read the story, what, the other times that it worked. And, and I can tell you that if the phone had worked that well, I'd have been ordering hot chocolate and blankets. But it, <laughs> it just wasn't yeah. doing it. Hello, Domino's, do you deliver? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it didn't do that. The, the phone didn't work that way. The rescuer's phones didn't work that way. And the rescuers' radios, their powerful radios, wouldn't even work out of that camp. You know, what's amazing about this, Brian, is the fact that it, it, it didn't work that way, but it worked just Enough. Exactly. Isn't it amazing the way God will allow a circumstance and uh, there is just enough and the rest is completed by our faith. The rest is completed by his grace. Exactly right. This, I would imagine, has had a profound change in your thinking. And I want to come back to that point of the story right after a quick timeout. Uh, so imagine there you are on a hillside of a mountain. It's dark. It is cold. You are in the middle of literally no man's land. You can see lights of no community anywhere within uh, your your vision. Um, 
There's no payphone available. The radio is not working. It's snowing. You kind of know maybe where you are, but you're the only one, even if you do, because certainly nobody else does. And all of a sudden, you get cell service out of nowhere. We'll pick up the amazing conclusion to this story as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. A great tune from World War II. And, of course, uh, any aviators out there or pilots know what that means. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. And certainly that's exactly, I think, the story of Brian Brown and his family. Uh, They literally came in on a wing or, in fact, not even on a wing. They had two broken wings. Uh, But God was with you, Brian, through this entire experience. Let's pick up where we left off. The cell phone starts ringing miraculously. It might be one bar, but you're able to communicate. You're able to reach out and get some help. Pick it up from there. Yeah, it was uh, it was one bar, and it was an intermittent one bar and on a dead battery. I mean, the battery was in the red on the phone. It was really in its worst-case scenario. And Heather did just an awesome job talking with the dispatcher. And I tell you, it was... At that point, we were freezing, broken, and scared, and we heard the voice of Lori Collins from the Hawaii County Dispatch uh, Center uh, tell us, 911, what's your emergency? And it was just an immediate, oh, you know, thank you, God. Somebody knows we're out here. And, um, you know, that's where things really started. And, um, again, the, the media really focused on that being the miracle of the whole thing. But, in fact, you know, when you read the book, you will just see miracle after miracle after miracle and, and we've described a few of them on the phone here um, but uh, it, it just is absolutely amazing how many more miracles fell down the line uh, in this in this entire um, event. How did they manage to rescue you? You're, you're in fairly rugged terrain there so it's not like they can just you know send the ambulance up the side of the hill. <laughs> no and it's funny because that's exactly what they had originally said was we're, we're sending four-wheel drive trucks up and 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 uh, like quads, you know, four-wheel drive units. And I'm sitting there, what I did know of the train, and thought, that's impossible. You need to send a helicopter. And um, sure enough, that is what they ended up finding out they needed to do was um, they were able to get uh, the permission from the Idaho National Guard to bring a, a crew over uh, that had a hoist and could actually hoist us off the mountain one by one. Mm. And, and that's truly how we got out of there. They they put us in a basket and hoisted us up a cable into the helicopter and then flew us over to another ridgeline about a mile away and then transferred us from their helicopter to a, a medical evacuation helicopter. All of you obviously survived. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit worse for wear for the experience physically. Um, but the miracle really here is that you survived. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest miracle is we survived that, that whole event. Um, and again, when you, when you read the book and you di- dissect everything that happened for us, 
for us and the rescuers even in our favor. And it was why we we chose to make sure that the rescuers had some some input in this book because they were experiencing things too on their way to get us that you know they sit back and talk now and and the the word keeps coming out and i heard you even say it it, it just makes me laugh uh, in a good way that you know, wow that word wow comes out and it 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 just really makes you feel wonderful you know that that we were so well taken care of like you said somebody else was totally in control and totally orchestrating that thing perfectly how has this changed you you mentioned at the get-go brian that you were not particularly uh, overtly religious individual or, or a, a praying man i think is what you said right. how has this changed your life in that regard well i tell you i would have never i don't i don't think i would have ever talked like this over the air to you know millions of people and i i'm I'm not afraid at all to to give credit where the credit was due here. I mean, it it is. There's just absolutely no doubt in my mind where all the credit was for us to be able to come out of this this event alive, and and in really such good shape. I mean, I I, I just know that's the biggest thing about me. I, I I don't think I would have done it before, and now I have zero hesitation about it. I'm I'm very proud to say that you know there's a God out there and He is taking care of us. He's watching us all the time. We just have to pay attention to when those things, when those instances come. Um, has this changed your life in other ways? I mean, I, I would imagine living through an experience like this, you get up every day with a whole different attitude. Yeah, you know, um, again, especially because of my career, I do see a lot of, um, I see a lot of times where people don't make it. Yeah, and it's it's a very hard situation. Um, truly to deal with uh, at this point because of course I believe my wife and daughter are very special um, but but I look at the whole thing and, and we don't really consider our, ourselves as special people and that we got special preference you know to be saved or spared and so you know when we see somebody that doesn't make it or, or hasn't been had the opportunity to be spared um, that is a struggle. That that still is a struggle. Yeah, and it's probably true for for every person in the in the, the rescue field. Right. Um, and and although I, I bet a special experience too for you, having spent a career as the rescuer, and now you have also been on the the receiving side of being the rescuee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, well, and that was a very big moment. You know, you you yourself earlier had said, you know, well, weren't we're, weren't you, didn't you have broken bones weren't you injured and i was working through that entire event you know in that rescuer mode all the way up until i saw the very first rescuer face to face and that's when i realized well one i didn't want to be a rescuer anymore you know it was a oh thank goodness i can be a, a victim yeah now and all my adrenaline everything that was charging me and keeping me going to try and keep us alive had all that was gone i mean i was in some considerable pain at that point and um we we'd looked at my arm and actually realized it was broken at that point i didn't even know it was broken until i saw that first rescuer to the atheist that comes to you and says so brian i I don't believe that there's any god what do you say to that person well i tell them you know i i sure hope god doesn't make them crash into the side of a mountain um like they did me um, I can't. I wouldn't say I was an atheist or had atheist thought or belief, but you know, 
I mean, and that sounds pretty harsh and tragic, but in the, I, I, I say that with a, a loving smile on my face. Please don't make God slam you into the side of a mountain to open your eyes and see that he's there. Because if he needs to do that, he will. You and, know, to, to get your attention. And and he, he, he certainly got your attention in this experience, didn't he? Absolutely, he did. <laughs> Has this changed also your relationship with Jayanne, your wife? Um, I'd say we're, we're definitely much closer. Right, at, right after the accident, you know, during our healing, um, Jayanne and Heather and Tabitha, all of us, we, we had a whole year of firsts again, if you know what I mean. Here's our first birthday after the accident. We're so grateful we had it. Um, you know, first anniversary after the accident, first Christmas, New Year, all those things. Um, they were very significant mile markers that year because we realized how how we all were, were about to be stripped of all of those things. The Memorial Day weekend will never be the same for your family, will it? No, no. It, well, and it, it's definitely a, a memorial event. Um, we, we do, you know, we have put a lot of it behind us and... and um, we definitely are finding fun things to do as a family together, but we, we do spend that day together as much as we can. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, what was the, the ultimate disposition on uh, that little Cessna 172 you called Lima? Yeah, she unfortunately will never be airborne again. Um, <laughs> she really held herself together for us. Uh now you you got to tell me that at least there's there's something uh, the nose cone or something that you've saved. Well, I have um, I have the the GPS unit that was in there. Okay, uh, they they let me have that back because I did need it to do a lot of my reports. Sure, but unfortunately, no. Uh, you know that was something really hard for me. Uh, like you, we had discussed before, that was a love gift from my wife. She bought it for me for my fortieth birthday, and uh, she was the last thing I saw as they were carrying me over to my uh, spot to be hoisted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was my release, uh, my stress release in life up to that point. That's what I, you know, if I had a rough day at work or just a rough week, I would go out and fly. And, you know, as soon as I started the motor on Lima, I was fine. You know, I'd, I was focused in my flying and, uh, you know, that's that was where I found my release. Are the flying days behind you now? Oh, no. I actually started flying again back in uh, March of, of this year. Horse kicks you off, you get back up on it. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? I it, Because I, I actually have been flying since I was 16 years old, and uh, it, it's like the firefighting. I've been doing it for over two decades. It's in my blood, and I can't stop. You know, it. I, I love both of those things so much. Uh, it, it's just in my system, and I have to... It's a part of me. Well, and I certainly hope the listeners will hear uh, the passion that you have, not only for flying, um, the passion for God, certainly the way in which this experience, you know, some of these are life-ending. This has been a life-changing experience. And we've we've kind of skimmed over some parts of the book because I don't want to ruin it for listeners, but I want to encourage folks, if you're looking for some real encouragement, particularly for uh, the atheist on his way to the foxhole, this is a great book. It is published by our friends at Harvest House. You'll find that at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. I think there's one or two of those left, certainly through Amazon.com. And I want to thank Brian Brown for being with us tonight, sharing his story, Rescued. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You go to the mall sometimes or maybe shopping, you watch a parent 
not parenting and the child's running amok throughout the stores, pulling things off the shelves, the whole bit, and you think to yourself, how come somebody doesn't teach that parent how to parent or hold them responsible for their child? There ought to be a law. Well, apparently in Dallas there is one, though it has nothing to do with encouraging parents to parent. In fact, it seemingly has just the opposite effect. You might have heard of this case of a parent whose daughter was engaged in, at the age of 12, no surprise there, engaged in some inappropriate chatting on the cell phone. Happens all the time, right? So dad did what most thinking, caring parents would do. And that is, he said to his daughter, taught you not to talk like that. I'm taking your cell phone away. The police were called. And the back end of the story is that he ended up spending a night in jail, had to pay $1,500 in bail, and it went to a jury trial. The father being accused of stealing his daughter's telephone. I guess I would I would be in a lot of trouble as a parent because in my house it would be you live underneath my roof. I pay for your bills and until the age of majority my rules go and if you don't behave appropriately the cell phone will be taken away. Can anybody tell me right now listening that's over the age of 18 who doesn't remember a time when mom or dad said when you were 16 or something years old, you acted up, you misbehaved, you didn't do your chores, whatever, and the car keys were taken away from you for the weekend? Happened to me a bunch of times. I guess I should have called the police on my dad and said, hey, he stole my car. Let's try to see if we can't make sense out of what seems to make no sense at all. Dr. Greg Jance joins us. He's a best-selling author of more than 25 books. He is founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources and the author of a new book that probably should be in the hands of every parent that has a child that's 18 or younger. It's called Hooked, The Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. And Dr. Jantz, thanks so much for making some time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. Is there something about this story I'm missing? I mean, really, this man was arrested for taking his daughter's cell phone because she was texting somebody inappropriately there's got to be a backstory please tell oh, me. oh there's got to be but what is it it's it's uh, unbelievable isn't that just simply unbelievable and uh the role of there's several things that are confused here is uh we've really uh probably uncovered quite the conflict that was going on prior to taking the cell phone away something else was going on and the other piece is uh, the role of technology with our young people and what's happening. Well, let's talk about a couple of things. First, there's a bit of background, and this will immediately, I think, for most parents listening, say, aha, uh, the, the, the parents of this child are separated. Maybe they were never married. From what I've read, it doesn't appear as if there was ever any wedlock involved. So the daughter lives with mom but comes and visits dad. It was the daughter who had the telephone given to her by mom. Dad took it away when he saw that she was engaged in some inappropriate texting. And so part of this just seems to be uh, a bit of a, a battle between parents. It is. And, of course, the kids are caught in the middle of it. Um and we know, too, that uh, there could be some different values as it relates to what's acceptable, even in, in text messaging. And uh, is that really private information? If you supply the cell phone and you have a kid who's under 18 and they're texting, is that private information? 
let's talk what about this because I, I've, I've seen I've seen several postings on the web that seem to suggest that there's more than one individual out there that seems to be of the opinion that you know this child has her her rights and after all it's an invasion of privacy this that and the other thing and I'm thinking to myself really in in 2016 knowing the kind of dangers that lurk out there on the internet behind the social media sites everything from uh, you know pedophiles to uh, well, you just about name it. Uh, e- even these days, we're seeing kids kidnapped and, and, and being brought into the sex trade as sex slaves. What what thinking, logical parent would say, oh, yeah, my daughter at the age of 12 has a quote unquote. I mean, if you want to help give her a little sense of privacy in terms of, you know, don't don't just walk through the bedroom door without knocking first that I get. But a child that has a right to privacy on an electronic device under the age of 18. I, I, what is it that I'm missing here? Well, you know, we're back to um, really, are we working on protecting our kids? Um, You know, what we do in our home, and I have two boys, is, um, you know, we know passwords. You share your password, and um, the phone or the smart device goes uh, actually in a charger, mom and dad's closet, at a certain time in the evening, or you don't have it the next day. Uh, we talk about things that are, um, you know, downloading an apps. We make it a, an open discussion. We know that the average age to exposure to pornography on the Internet now is, is age 10, 10 years old. So we're seeing boys 14, 15, 16 really have developed what fits more in the category of sexual addiction. I just read a story, Dr. Chance, probably over the weekend, about a mother who had her young son, a 10-year-old boy, had his Facebook account linked to her. So anytime there was a like or a message sent, she saw what was being communicated. To discover that he was suddenly communicating with a 30-year-old man who wanted to make arrangements to meet the boy. There was apparently some graphic exchange of conversation. The mother happened to see this, immediately intervened, turned the device over to police, who then, posing as this perp, uh, actually set up a meeting. The guy showed up and he got arrested. I mean, those kinds of dangers. Are there parents that are so naive out there that they don't realize that if they don't control these devices pretty strictly like in the case of this father here, that the kind of risk that they are exposing their children to is the equivalent of saying, hey, let me give you 10 bucks and send you into the seediest part of town for the evening and, you know, come home by 10. Right, right. Well, you know, here's the thing. Technology, and if you have kids that have been born in the 90s, they're part of the I generation. It's the first uh, generation to be tethered to technology. And there's an underground world, and they're faster and smarter than we are. And every day there's a new app, and kids move in herds. You know, Facebook is old news. We're off to uh, other things. And um, now I can buy an app and put it on my smartphone that looks like a calculator, but it's really a disguised communication tool. Um, We have instant live uh, videoing now. And there's some apps like this that the parents ought to really be concerned about. So we've got to involve ourselves in the lives of our kids, uh, really from a protection point of view. And again, as, as we're suggesting, this is not necessarily because you're trying to snoop on them or, you know, you're, you're trying to set up an environment where you demonstrate out the gate that you don't trust them. 
But the level of vulnerability out there is is so incredible. In fact, we'll, we'll pose this question for Dr. Jans and have an answer when we come back after a timeout. When I grew up, granted that was back when the Stone Age was here and there was, you know, no electric light or running water yet, uh, my father insisted that if I was going out for an evening or hanging out with neighborhood kids after a certain time of the day, he wanted to know where I was going to be, what parent was at that home, a telephone number to call in case of an emergency, and he insisted upon knowing the parents of the children that I associated with. He said it was just good parenting. That was just to protect me from what might be lurking in the neighborhood. Imagine today where with the Internet, it's the whole planet that we need to be concerned about. So what of that? We'll talk about that when we come back to more of the conversation. Do you believe that your child's so-called right to privacy ought to trump your responsibility to protect your son or daughter? If you were the parent in this Dallas case, 12-year-old daughter inappropriately texting with someone, broken the rules, you say, okay, you break the rules, I'm taking the cell phone away. Is that an appropriate parental response? What about the city of Dallas? Really? They don't have enough crime problems down there that they go and arrest this guy and put him in the Huskow overnight? This ends up going to a jury trial all over the question of the father being charged with stealing his daughter's cell phone because he was disciplining her for inappropriate behavior in texting on said cell phone. I mean, at, at what point do our child's rights end and our responsibility as parents begin? Dr. Greg Jantz, he is best-selling author and founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. We're talking about the shocking case out of Dallas. Fortunately, the judge said, there's no evidence here. Get this thing out of my courtroom. But it, it, it begs the question, should parents not take full responsibility for parenting their children? And since when should the police department, the government, get involved in a case like this? A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So split parents here. Daughter primarily lives with mom, visiting dad. Dad sees daughter engaged in some inappropriate texting. Rules of the house are you can't behave like that. Says the daughter, I'm confiscating uh, confiscating your telephone. The 12-year-old pulls a typical 12-year-old conniption fit. Goes tattling to mommy, who apparently decides this is a great way to get back at daddy, and then through the police demands that the telephone be returned, otherwise it's considered stolen property. Now, that's that's the lay of the land. What's your reaction? Let's go to San Jose and say good evening to Elaine. Elaine, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Greg Jans on this topic. Good evening. Um, yes, I, I, it's more of a question comment type thing. I was listening to Kevin uh, Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman, oh, yes. psychologist, uh-huh. and he was making the point that uh, it, it, in this very exact uh, topic of cell phones, that parents don't realize that the phone belongs to them because they are the one that paid for it. So therefore, if a child abuses the uh, rules and guidelines of the telephone, the, the cell phone, then the parent has every right to take it away from the child. Now, in this particular case, I think because of the way our culture is going, we seem to get things confused as to what and who has a right. And you get the right lawyer out there, and they'll sue for the most ridiculous things, as in this case, I do believe. Um, 
and I'm just glad that the um, judge threw it out. Um, but it, it, the fact that it got that far was kind of interesting to me. But I think you're right on when you say that it's, uh, it was appeared that the mom was trying to get back at her ex. Oh yeah, I mean that—that's that, that, that's certainly, I think, a big uh, component here, Elaine. And the other thing that I find of, of, of concern, and Elaine kind of alludes to this, Doctor Jans, and that is the notion that you know we're in a day and an age when some of the child psychologists out there say, now don't don't spank or paddle a child because that's considered uh-huh. to be abusive. So right. then, what tools are left to a parent to try and discipline a child in an appropriate fashion? If you if if taking away their privileges is abusive and spanking them is considered child abuse and you can't take away the cell phone because now you're stealing property why do we call them children then why don't we just say that they're you know miniature adults that's right well good point you know and i think too another bigger picture is um what how do we handle a whole issue of technology with our parenting we know that um uh, there's some real dangers right now with kids and technology, and how do we monitor this? What do we do? Um, and how do we uh, set up technology rules for our family and our household? And what's our values there? Um, how do we use it for good? So these are all important questions. You have a broken uh, family. Uh, this gets even more complicated because one parent may uh, be more involved than the other in uh, the whole technology realm. And so we, we send a lot of mis- messages. Are parents uh, underplaying that- the, the danger here? I alluded before the break to the notion that my father insisted on knowing who my playmates were, who their parents were. And by the way, if you're going to be over at so-and-so's house, I want a telephone number. I mean, was that overprotective for that era? I'm talking 40 years ago. And if that was overprotective for them, considering what's lurking on the other side of a cell phone or the Internet these days, my goodness. That's right. So what we do know is that uh, that was probably not overprotective. That showed love and care and protection. And right now there's a whole other level, invisible level of communication, connection uh, that's happening via uh, the Internet and online activity that parents uh, probably for the most part, I'm always amazed how many parents really um, aren't, aren't privy to how much is actually going on. You know, how many kids have received a sex texting? How many kids have had bully behavior online? So I, I just want to open up the awareness. I want to keep this so kids don't feel ashamed and they can talk about it. And, you know, developmentally, um, uh, developmental stages, the research has shown us that overstimulating the brain uh, with nonstop high-intensity blue screen activity um, really over time uh, can create what we call a craving brain. That brain wants more and more stimuli. We know boys are more prone to this. It can really set you up to have an addictive-type brain and craving more and more. So in addition to some of the obvious things, like uh, pedophiles trying to make connection with children, things of this sort, uh, there, there's this whole layer of, of exposing them. And, and I guess it's true then that there, there, there are levels of maturity which our children need to be prepared to what they're exposed to. That isn't to say that eventually they're not going to run into this. I mean, uh, how many of us listening right now have innocently sat down to the computer and, and, and Googled a, a cooking recipe and all of a sudden, my goodness, got hit with porn? Jarell is raising his hand. It 
happens all okay. the time. A- yeah. And yet to understand, like this one recent uh, junior high school, half of the student body got disciplined because they were swapping uh, naked photos of each other. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, yep. it, is, it is a slippery soap, and, and does it say to parents like Elaine and others out there, uh, you need to take time to get educated and realize that there's a lot more going on and capable of taking place in the digital realm than most of us are really uh, aware of? There's a lot more going on, isn't there, than what we're aware of. Uh, we do something called a digital dinner. One night a week, it's okay to talk about anything related to technology. The kids can take charge, and we sit there and learn about things that they know about, so that it helps us. <laughs> so, and we also want to promote to have one day of technology detox, where you just set it all away and down, and you're not involved with it for a day, and you, you learn how to do a board game. That's a board game, not a boring game. Uh, you begin to do things that you wouldn't normally have done. You're not talking like people actually sitting and conversing with each other face-to-face, are you? Well, I, I knew that I had a problem in my home some time ago, and my two boys were at the dinner table texting back and forth under the table. To each other. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we sure appreciate the time tonight. Thank you also, Elaine, for your input. And uh, let me mention, by the way, that Dr. Jantz's book, Hooked the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing, um, is uh, available. And uh, can you get it through your website as well, Dr. Jantz? Visit us at aplaceofhope.com, yes. Excellent. Good good resource for more information and, of course, to get a copy of the book. And, again, you know, this this is a topic that I realize for any of us over the age of 20, uh, uh, we're, we're still playing catch-up. And what comes naturally to the kids is a big learning curve for all of us. But be aware of the pitfalls and the dangers that are out there. This case certainly out of Dallas is at the extreme and yet demonstrative of the fact that this parent was simply doing their job to protect their daughter because uncontrolled, unfettered, uh, this can be a very dangerous um, manipulative tool in the hands of the wrong people and the kind of stuff that your kids can be exposed to can be very dangerous. I'm not suggesting that it's not great technology. We all enjoy it. Life has gotten a lot easier at many levels, a lot more complicated at many others, but uh, it needs to be a case where parent, you need to be actively engaged and aware. And I like what Dr. Jans suggests. How about a disconnect it, turn it off evening for the entire family? Dad's not responding to emails from work. Mom is not texting, you know, a friend down the street who wants a copy of a recipe or trying to coordinate, you know, the, 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 the you know, who's taking who the, to soccer practice next Saturday. The kids are not texting each other, sitting right across the table from each other and texting each other. Can you believe it? How about just good old-fashioned face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation? Remember how that goes? You say something and I listen, then I say something when you listen, and then we repeat. Fascinating thought, isn't it? wonder how that goes. All right. Thanks so much to Dr. Greg Jantz. Again, the book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. You can get it on his website at aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.